Is it possible that a hundred years later, Kamala Harris's nomination for the vice presidency could be ending the shameful racial history of the suffrage movement? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. As with so many messy things in our lives, it's nice to organize history into nice little clean boxes. Statues and monuments, they help us do that. In bronze or stone statues on pedestals, we note our heroes on horseback, who seem to always be men. White men at that. In this age of Donald Trump and Black Lives Matter monuments, to what we thought was stored neatly in our past are suddenly very much alive. Heroes of the militarily defeated Southern nation like General Robert E. Lee have been pulled down by angry crowds or lawfully just removed. August 2020 was the 100th anniversary of women winning the right to vote in America, and new attention is being paid to those who have been assumed to be heroes of that struggle. On August 26th, in New York City's Central Park, a new statue of Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady, Stanton, and Sojourner Truth was officially unveiled. The monument is a gift to the park from Monumental Women, a nonprofit organization formed in 2014, a group which has raised the $1.5 million necessary to commission, install, and maintain the new Women's Rights Pioneers Monument, and so achieve its goal of breaking the bronze ceiling. I like that phrase, in Central Park. It all sounds good, and it's about time, but originally Sojourner Truth, a black woman, had not been included for that statue. In fact, the women's suffrage movement of the 19-teens was segregationist. Black women always had to march to the rear of any demonstration. The leaders were clear that women's right to vote was only about white women in America. The question is, can we apply today's standards of adhorrence to racism? Was it just acceptable at the time? How do we best celebrate the victories that they achieved? Or perhaps it's still not time to stand back and celebrate because the work is nowhere near done. Many of us naively thought that the election of a black president would be a solid blow to racism. Boy, were we wrong. What about the choice of Kamala Harris as Biden's VP? Perhaps she makes a connection with and inspires the people who have been the strong backbone of the Democratic Party, black women. People who have been too long taken for granted. Is it possible that, as our guest today asks, if 100 years later Kamala Harris' nomination ends shameful racial history of the suffrage movement. Our guest is Melinda Hennenberger, an editorial writer and columnist for the Kansas City Star and a member of the USA Today Board of Contributors. As she says, it's long past time for a black woman to lead the Democratic Party instead of trailing behind. And I, I agree with that, and I suspect anybody who's listening probably agrees with that. 
Thank you so much for being with us, Melinda Henneberger. Thank you for having me. Well, the new monument in New York Central Park is the first statue of women, the first new statue in the park in decades. While statues topple across America, this features Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Sojourner Truth. Before the addition of Sojourner Truth, who was born into slavery and became a leading abolitionist and women's rights advocate, a New York Times critic, Brent Stephen, called the monument a lily-white version of history. Another critic wrote that the monument manages to recapitulate the marginalization black women experienced during the suffrage movement. End of quote. There is a real lack of knowledge of that history. Please tell us about the marginalization of black women in the women's movement for the right to vote. Well, this, the saddest part of the story, I think, is that they knew better. And we know that because uh, many of the early suffragists met as abolitionists. That's how Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony met, and many of the others as well. Um, and they worked with Frederick Douglass. They were allies uh, off and on uh, throughout their careers. And Frederick Douglass was one of the few men president at Seneca Falls in 1848. But after the Civil War, they came to believe that they needed the support of Southerners to win and to do that, they made some ugly compromises. They frequently blamed immigrants for their defeats. And um, when, even when women, you know, one of the most celebrated events uh, of suffrage is when women marched in front of the White House in 1913. But we don't often add that uh, at that historic march, black women were made to march last. Yeah, amazing. It's It's been around for so long. In fact, uh, one of the great uh, liberal populist progressives, William Jennings Bryant, who ran for president, uh, he was left-leaning. He stood for the little guy against the power of big money. And by today's standards, even he would be called a racist. The word racism didn't exist at the time. It was just so commonly held by white right. people. It was a long and difficult struggle for women's suffrage. No question about that. You referred to Victoria Woodhull as one of the uh, early activist mm -hmm. voices. Tell us, please, about who right. she was and what excited some and scared others about her. <laughs> An extremely colorful character, Victoria Woodhull. I think if, if more people knew about her history, they would be more interested in the history of the suffrage movement. But she was an early feminist leader who advocated free love. And for that, she was extremely controversial. Uh, she, in fact, she was known as Mrs. Satan. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> she was also a spiritualist as a lot of people at that time were. Yes. And, uh, at the spiritualism convention, very well attended in eight, uh, 1872, I think it was, she uh, answered her critics and uh, rivals in the movement who thought it was just shocking that she was uh, so openly uh, for f free love and living that lifestyle that she decided to uh, tell them all about the hypocrisy of some of these people and the affairs yeah. that they were carrying on much more quietly, <laughs> quietly until then. Uh -huh. Um but even some of those, I think many of those who were critics also in the end said how brave she was to have um, 
sort of put her hand up for that kind of criticism. Yeah, and before her, there was actually uh, Emma Goldman, who was, uh, she she upset a lot of people as well. She was also for uh, uh, free love and just an amazing, amazing woman uh, who uh, paid a price for it, for sure. Uh, Right. And of course, you know, people know the names Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And it was only after pushback that Sojourner Truth that we mentioned earlier was added. Mm -hmm. Um, As you write in your article, uh, and that after the Civil War, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony campaigned for the women's vote with the support of their huckster ally, George Train, whose unambiguous slogan was, woman first and Negro last. Were Stanton and Anthony okay with that? What, What is known? I don't know if they were okay with that slogan, but they campaigned with him. He, in fact, financed their one of their campaigns in Kansas and they remained close to him for I think throughout their lives Stanton in particular she called him one of the finest men she'd ever known Hmm. so if they pushed back they didn't push back hard enough (laughs) clearly not and your article uh, that spawned this discussion included a quote from Stanton reflecting the then widespread diminution of Americans from different cultures uh, who had a lack of education about our system. This was at a time when immigrants and hyphenated Americans were kind of beat up on in many, many different ways, including physically. So what about Stanton's attitude about Americans who came from different cultures? She said this in 1869. She said, Think of Patrick and Sambo and Hans and Young Tung, who do not know the difference between a monarchy and a republic, who cannot read the Declaration of Independence or Webster's spelling book, making laws for their female betters. So, uh, and and this was was not uh, the only time she said things like that. She and others. Well, heroes are hard to find, and. Uh... They often <laughs> often have flaws. There's no question about that. And there's there's one there. And uh, and I don't want to minimize right. uh, what they achieved. Sure. In any way, I mean, they were up against the entire power structure, the entire patriarchy. What they did uh, led to m- many many positives in our more funding for education, more funding for social programs of all kinds. But I just think we should see them as they were, and not as we wish they were. Uh, That's a very good point. Uh, How did Susan B. Anthony try to rationalize her compromises with white supremacists? I mean, clearly, as you said, they were very effective in starting to change the priorities of this country, and that is huge. But how how did she rationalize her compromises with white supremacists? She always thought that once women had the vote, they would completely transform and reform politics, and many of their critics thought that too. That's why there was so much, one of the reasons there was so much pushback against women's suffrage. So she really felt, because as an early abolitionist, she wanted racial equality as well, but she rationalized to herself that by throwing in with uh, Southerners who had a completely different view of race and of and of white supremacy, who were white supremacists, in other words, that once women had the vote, they would take care of it all somehow. They would transform the entire system. Yeah, well, 
but yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it is true. I mean, one has to be somewhat pragmatic to get things done, and to pass a constitutional amendment, you need, I believe, it's two thirds of the states. Is that right? I, I think that's right. What I that's know. right. And so, you know, yeah, some people ask me after I wrote this, do you think? They could have gotten the amendment passed uh, if they hadn't taken this very, very strategic and, uh, you know, morally unsavory compromise. And I, I don't know the answer. We really can't know the answer. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there's a lot of those southern states, the old Confederacy. and That's right. I, and where they had no support until they made these compromises. That's uh -huh. that much as we know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even uh, Franklin Roosevelt actually made compromises with the uh, Southern Democratic senators to get his uh, his New Deal passed. Uh, he, right. he he there was a potential law against lynching that he sided with them on because he wanted to pass right. the New Deal legislation. Uh, one Absolutely. Makes, yeah, one makes these compromises. Um, ever since the Civil War, Confederate sympathizers pitched their crusade in terms of states' rights, as we all know, which, of course, of course meant states' rights to legally discriminate against uh, people of color. I was mm -hmm. surprised to read about the 1903 decision by the National Women's Suffrage Association on this aspect. What was that and how was it sold that allowing votes from highly educated white women became a brick in the foundation of white supremacy? So in 1903, as you say, they decided that any state could allow their suffragist membership uh, to make their own rules. So if Alabama wanted to have an all-white membership, that would be fine. And if New York didn't, that would be fine, too. Um, but this really made made it uh, many of the of the organizations that were pushing for women's empowerment, uh, racist organizations. And so, you know, they sold their idea to Southerners that more white voters, mostly um, educated white women, would guarantee their continued power. Would guarantee uh -huh. white supremacy, yeah, because there would be because um, you know after the Civil War, after um, black after the Fifteenth Amendment, black men were supposed to be able to vote, but mm -hmm. the Southerners found a way around that, mm -hmm. and the assumption was that they would also find a way around black women voters. Huh, interesting compromise, but uh, change doesn't uh, always happen really quickly. In fact, it almost always happens really, really slowly and incrementally. A lot of people on the right and left don't get that. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with uh, Melinda Henneberger, editorial writer and columnist for the Kansas City Star. We're talking about uh, uh, racism in the struggle for women's right to vote happened uh, 100 years ago, August 1920, the amendment was passed. What compromises did they have to make? And how far have we come? And eventually we'll, we'll get to uh, the uh, Democratic Party nominee for vice president, Kamala Harris. Back to the Civil War. There was a great strife mm -hmm. among political leaders about how much power formerly enslaved people should have. 
I guess, formerly enslaved men, really. There was great resistance right. to giving black people the right to vote and hold office. It got really ugly after uh, Reconstruction. At the same time, the struggle for women's right to vote was also stirring things up. So simultaneously, and Stanton and Anthony agreed one was more important than the other. So w what do we know about this? We've talked about that a little bit. Why, why is it more important than the other? For them, it wasn't. Well, the movement really, the movement for women's vote really broke apart over this issue because some early suffragists said black men actually should get to go first because they had suffered more harm and for a longer period. Uh, others felt very strongly the other way and said, if women can't vote, neither should they. And so this really did, um, there were early suffragists who supported um the black vote, but it, it broke apart the whole women's movement of that time. Well, I'm not surprised. As uh, my old friend Abby Hoffman used to say, the relationship between mm -hmm. the right and left is perfect. The right is sadistic. The left is masochistic. We, <laughs> we tear ourselves apart. There's a long history mm -hmm. of that. It's so true. Right. Well, another name, it was not that well known, Alice Paul was an American suffragist, right. feminist, women's rights activist. And one of the main leaders and strategists of the campaign for the 19th Amendment. In fact, my daughter's dorm building at Swarthmore College is the Alice, <laughs> Alice Paul dorm. She initiated and strategized events such as the women's suffrage possession, uh, procession rather, and the silent sentinels toward winning the amendment's right. passage. Um, at, at the 1913 parade in front of the White House, what did, uh, what was the... Uh, women's suffrage procession and the silent sentinels and then what did she and others decide about the place of black women at that 1913 parade in front of the white house bunch of questions there the silent sentinels were really the you know the protesters of their day standing out what's now lafayette park standing outside the white house uh when woodrow wilson was president mm -hmm. and um the march in 1913 was um, the one, the parade in front of the White House was the one I referred to earlier where, you know, even the states that had integrated groups of suffragists were split up so that their black members were made to march last. Mm. And um, I don't think she wanted it that way, but that is how it turned out. That is what the compromise they well, wasn't much for compromise. That is what mm -hmm. they ended up doing, and uh, you know, it's it's really sad to think about. Yeah, but it's reality, and the reality of uh, Woodrow yes. Wilson as president. Uh, he really was, uh, by our standards, quite racist. He reintroduced right. segregation and not hiring black people in the federal government. He was not in my opinion, a good, mm -hmm. good guy in many ways. Uh, so right. in their goal of winning enough states for the passage of the 19th Amendment, how did white women leaders approach political powers in places like Tennessee in particular? I wonder what their successful selling point was in Tennessee. The successful selling point was, here's a bunch of white votes for you. You know, this is going to cement... The, really the racist system you have in place. I hate to say it that way, but it, that's how it was. 
That's how it was. Oh, my goodness. And as for Woodrow Wilson, you know, I mean, they won him over really by delivering the support of two million women during World War One, even though there were a lot of suffragists who also didn't support the war. So that that was a different kind of compromise. Yeah, it was. And one of my heroes from that era was the far lesser known Jane Addams. Uh, when she died in 1935, she was the best-known p- female public figure in America. She was a leader in the history of social work and women's suffrage and was a leader in the fight against the U.S. getting into that disastrous First World War. Right. She became, in right. uh, 1931, she got a Nobel Peace Prize. And brilliantly, I thought, and I, I just I look up to her so much, she was invited by European women peace activists to preside over the International Congress of Women at The Hague in April of 1915 as the war was going full tilt and it wasn't going very well for any side at all, just thousands and thousands of, of horrible deaths. So she was chosen to head the commission to find an end to the war. Do you think... It might have been her vocal opposition to American entry into that meaningless war, which has rendered her a pariah or at least an outcast in women's history. And what does that say about the fear at the time that women would transform politics? Bunch of questions in there. Yeah, maybe that's why. I, I can't say that I know that, but I she's a big hero in my family. My aunt who was born in the 30s so she would not have known her personally but she went to work at Hull House uh she was so inspired by by her work and everything she had achieved um and i you know the it was very difficult for women's leaders of that time to go up against the war it it as i said by selling out that's how they that's how they got the amendment passed <laughs> yeah as they lost a lot of their husbands and sons in the process, uh, black, right. black and white. Yeah, it's compromises. Right. Boy, it's tough, but they did eventually uh, get it. And somehow, I'm not quite sure how it helped. The women's movement did help end uh, the, the war and push uh, uh, Wilson to, to end the war somehow or another. But it was, it was a very, very messy situation. And, and that's what history is. It's messy. It's not in neat boxes. And we, right. we know that there are American women today who fervently back Donald Trump for re-election. Amazing, Absolutely. Amazing to me. But there's no lack of evidence at Trump's attitudes towards women. And mm-hmm. I wonder about the addition of Kamala Harris to the Democratic ticket. I think it's brilliant in that she's not only a strong, outspoken woman, which clearly gets under his skin, which I love to see. She's of Jamaican and Indian (laughs) descent. At the time of the long struggle for women's right to vote, many women strenuously opposed the 19th Amendment. Do you see any any parallels to explanations as to why women would be backing Trump and Trumpism and why they'd be so strongly opposed to the right to vote? Absolutely. So I've been writing about women voters for years. And when I first started doing this, I remember the pollster, Anna Greenberg, said, you know, there's never really been such a thing as the woman's vote. It's, you know, the black woman's vote and the white woman's vote and the suburban and the married and the single, that that there are all these little boxes. 
of um, of demographics. But and she said that's because women really didn't go through an experience together, an experience like slavery that cemented the black vote as uh, not a monolith, but more of a of a force, more cohesive. And I thought, well, that's funny because I think women did go through a lot together. But it's true that the split continues, and I've certainly interviewed many women at Trump rallies and elsewhere here in, in Missouri, where I am in, in Kansas, just across the state line, uh, who love Donald Trump. And what they will tell you is that they they don't take his comments about women seriously. They they look past them. They don't believe the sexual assault rape charges and they're, they identify more as a Republican mm-hmm. than as a woman. And this is very much the same kind of split we've seen all along of uh, identifying more on the basis of race than gender. Oh, interesting. Go ahead. Yeah. And then, you know, in terms of where Kamala Harris come, fits in here, I, I too think that, you know, she's in the mold of these women who fought so hard for their rights. And even though she wasn't my first choice right. to, as a woman to go on the ticket, mm-hmm. I think I have, come, I have definitely come around and I think it's great to have a woman of color on the ticket. And beyond that, she personally, in her skills as a fighter, as a former prosecutor, which in the beginning I, I wasn't wild about her record as a Same former here. prosecutor, but yes. but I I do think that she can take the fight to Donald Trump, and that's important. Yeah, it really is. She was not my first choice either, but I think it's terrific. I think she's mm. just great, and to to really get under his skin, he can't stand strong women, and the. The identification that people have, you know, we're all, I mean, I'm a a white male, actually Jewish, but I look white, uh, and so there is a slight difference, uh, but I'm also a Democrat, and I think everybody, you know, women, black women, women of, you know, Eastern European immigrants, there's all different ways we can be defined, and, you know, I, I think mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's just so many different uh, overlapping definitions that we have and how it is that well you know trump is talking about the suburban housewife he's trying to reach right. the suburban housewife uh, is the uh, right. so you've you've interviewed some some uh women who support Many. trump uh, do they are they okay with that suburban housewife thing i mean i, I don't think it was chosen willy-nilly that phrase how's that, no, how's that working if, if, if you weren't offended by his talk about pea grabbing, you're definitely not going to turn on him because he called you a suburban housewife. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there, we. This is a very tribal moment, yes. and their first loyalty is many of these people is as a Republican. Now, of course, they're also former Trump voters who've really turned on him. There are some. You know, Republicans all over the country who are, are have had it with them on any number of fronts. Mm-hmm. But there are definitely still those women, and we'll see. I mean, this this battle is going to be fought and won in the suburbs, I think. 
uh, we'll see how many women have had enough and are peeling off. Well, there's also the issue of, of boredom. He's not entertaining anymore, and that's what he's about. All he ever talks about is ratings, and the, mm-hmm. the Democratic uh, convention got higher ratings, and it's boring. It's <laughs> boring. So maybe that's a big thing. I mean, you and I may care about issues. <laughs> in getting you know, I'm not bored by the way he's destroying the world. I'm sickened, but yes. I'm not bored. I I am. I think he's the worst president we've oh, ever had, and and though I'm not so familiar with every president, every historian historian I've asked about it has agreed. Um, but I think he's exhausted people. Yes. So people who even may like a lot of his policies, like the tax cut, like like kind of sticking it to the libs, you know, apparently that is huge, can be underestimated. Um, but they're ex- I think a lot of us are just exhausted with the whole thing. Yeah, let's let's hope so. And I do find it interesting. I'm trying to find, I've been in politics a long time, and trying to find out why it is people that get most screwed by the system are some of the biggest backers of that system. I, mm-hmm. I just finished a book called 1848, which is about the many revolutions across Europe, Central Europe, places like that. And what I learned was that the monarchs, the Habsburgs and others, depended on the peasants who were the biggest supporters of the monarch, the people who had nothing. Mm -hmm. Because, as it turns out, it's reliable, it's dependable, it doesn't shake things up. They know the the place. It's it's fascinating how long that has gone on, that people don't necessarily vote for Mm. what you and I might think is their own interest, but it's security, some sort of security. And I wonder if that's the case with with some more conservative women, if... The idea of feminism and, and, and women power doesn't appeal to them. That, that it's sort of, they, they like their uh, position in the household, you know, the very 1950s type tradition. What's your sense of that? I don't think it's exactly that. There are a Good. lot of conservative women who consider themselves feminists. You know, I, a conservative friend of mine told me the other day, you do not own that word feminist. And that's true. We don't. Right. Um, uh, so, but I think it's security in terms of, oh, and the one, you know, the one breadwinner household went right. away a long time ago. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, that's not so much enforced anymore. Yeah. But I think the security thereafter is more, you know, vulnerability to being afraid that, uh, you know, they keep talking about these marauding mobs. Yeah. You know, in these so-called Democrat-run cities, um, you know, this sort of uh, punching up the violence uh, and trying very much trying to sell the fear of what Joe Biden. Of course, this is all happening in Donald Trump's America, but the fear that 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 will be the hallmark of Joe Biden's America. But, you know, a lot of people... um, I don't know if you know my friend Walter Shapiro, who has been covering politics for a long, long time. He wrote a piece a long time ago. He lives in New York and Washington that I thought was great. It was about how the uh, Upper West Side, where he lives, they don't really vote their narrowly defined interests either because they vote for higher taxes. So they vote in terms of what they think is the common good. Yep. And I do know a lot of Republican women 
who also, we can say that they're not voting in their interests, and I think that's true, but they do think of themselves as voting for the common good because they think abortion is such an important issue that they put that above all else. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I have one really close Republican friend in the small town in southern Illinois, very conservative area where I grew up. And she said, and she says, I can't stand Donald Trump. I disagree with him on X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. but I will never vote for a Democrat because of abortion. Yeah, and that is that is the only issue for lots of people I know. I did an interview a few months ago that still is amazing to me. With uh, the woman's name is Catherine Stewart. She wrote a book called The Power Worshippers, and the bar and Trump people who want to have. A, uh, a religious nationalism, they found that abortion was the issue that connected with people. And so they've been using that. Mm-hmm. Their real interest is in taking power and, and having that power and exercising that power. And the abortion issue, yeah, you can't, people are generally not flexible, You're either pro choice or not, you know. So for people who it's a big issue, It'll it will come up. It, it, it's definitely coming up now. And I, you know, I saw a car yesterday with a whole bunch of anti-choice bumper stickers on it. And of course, there was a Trump sticker. So I'm not going to bother talking to them. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking about uh, 100 years later, after the passage of the 19th Amendment. Uh, our guest today is uh, Melinda Henneberger, editorial writer and columnist for the Kansas City Star and a member of USA Today Board of Contributors. And uh, we're talking about if maybe Kamala Harris, if we're at some historic turning point here where black women women of color who have been the backbone of the Democratic Party are finally finally being recognized. They were not recognized in the early days of the uh, right to vote movement, the suffragette movement, uh, but perhaps being recognized now. So that another period of some degree of turbulence was the 1960s. The women, <laughs> white women suffragists turned their backs on black women back in you know, 1913 through 1920. What about the struggle for black voting rights in the 1960s? What about the role of women, black and white, working together on voting rights uh, and that whole civil rights thing? I, I'm guessing that there was a lot more collusion and agreement. What do you know about that? There was, but I don't know if you... I I recently watched this miniseries on uh, Phyllis Schlafly, which is more set in the 70s than the 60s, but... It really shows the splits that are mirroring exactly what we're talking about within the women's movement and of that time. Um, some black women who felt very marginalized, mm-hmm. who felt like they weren't listened to, who felt that they were shut out of leadership positions. Shirley Chisholm, definitely the first black woman to run for president, yes. definitely felt undercut by Gloria Steinem and some of the other mm-hmm. leaders of that time. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. And of course, women in general, back in the SDS, their first role was getting coffee for the men. It actually was. <laughs> <laughs> and that didn't take too wow. long for them to yeah. rise up against that. That was a, a good thing. They're like, hey, you guys are supposed to be, you know, liberal left and we're getting coffee for you? Yeah, I don't think so. Well, you know, Sojourner Truth foresaw this because she said that if um, black people, if black men get the vote and women do not, 
it, it'll just be black men in charge the way it has been white men in charge. <laughs> and and it, she did. She said that. I believe it. <laughs> well, yeah. men have this insecurity. I don't know what the heck it is. Why, you know, <laughs> <laughs> afraid of powerful women. I don't get it. Uh, I also don't get why, you know. Some men can't hear women's voices. I experienced that to this day huh. of, you know, you're, where you're in the meeting. And it, I mean, it's a cliche, but it still yeah. occurs where you say something and five minutes later, your male colleague says the exact same thing. <laughs> oh, great idea, Sam. <laughs> he, they, they take credit for it, I assume, as if you didn't say it. Oh, I know. I've, I've been in many different organizations and that, that, that still does happen. And, Apparently, uh, Hillary Clinton hired a young staffer, a male staffer, to repeat what she had said in the meetings to make sure everyone could hear. (laughs) (laughs) No kidding. Oh, my goodness. Uh, It's just... uh... Yeah. It goes on and on and on. And and people used to say that she was shrill. Would you ever say that about Mm. a man talking? No. Clearly not. No, no. So we have a ways to go. You know, here we are 100 years later after getting the vote. But boy, we are not there yet. And But there was a little celebration, I'm sure. I wasn't there for the Central Park statues. Uh, you know, the rules for men and women do tend to be unique, different for each one. Women, <laughs> it seems, are still under social pressure to look young and to be trim. That's not... You know, men aren't burdened with that so much. I, you know, to me, when I see high heels, I'm thinking, doesn't that hurt? Why? I don't get it. But, uh, you know, it's like, I, I don't understand. Some find that the requ- the requirement to look young and trim to be offensive and oppressive. I certainly do. And apparently the women in the statue are shown with unwrinkled faces, smooth hands and mm. firm necks. One critic called it the equivalent of glamour shots in bronze. The women were older when they earned their fame. What mm. what kind of feminism is that? Your thoughts? Well, I think that sometimes the looks of men are also smoothed and improved for casting in bronze. So I don't mm. know about that, but there's no question that they that women are under different pressures to uh, yeah. to look good and to, to stay young. Um, I mean, there's there's pressure on men to look young, too, mm. I, it, depending on what your business is. But there's really no comparison. And in terms of men and women in politics, we have actually in the media gotten a lot better on that front, I think. I mean, there's definitely more awareness now that let's not focus on women's looks and let's not act as if we can't see men. I mean, it's okay to mention, you know, things we see with our eyes where they're concerned too sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I think there's more balance now on that front than there has been. But yeah, it takes, you know, one just very practical result of this because it takes women longer to be ready is because of all these added perceived requirements, oh God, then, you know, that makes that makes the campaign schedule even more grueling, actually. Ah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I have gray hair, white hair, and a lot of women uh, don't like having gray hair or white hair. I don't, I think it's fine myself, but, you know, it, it's okay for men to look dignified, as it were. And, you know, the uh, different standards, 
not fair. One of the critics of the statue, Aaron Thompson, wrote, Besides portraying them as conventionally attractive, the sculptor uses symbols that emphasize the more traditional feminine aspects of their lives. Sojourner Truth's mm. lapful of knitting, Stanton's delicate spindly furniture, and Anthony's handbag. Who could doubt that their armpit hair is also under control? And this uh, critic uh, goes on to wonder, with faces of almost pre preternatural calm, such expressions only contribute to be what can be called the concealment of the struggle that marked feminism in its first moments. Your reaction to that? Uh, I, I think that art is open to interpretation, and I don't have a problem with that, but I think we can bring a lot of different, get a lot of different reactions from what we see. I, I guess I don't, if Sojourner Truth has Truth has her knitting, I mean that she did knit, uh -huh. and so so I don't think we should necessarily see that as uh -huh. as trying to impose something on her that was real. Uh huh. Yeah, and we can't set up unrealistic standards. People are mm -hmm. who they are. If she liked knitting, right. she liked knitting. Uh, yeah. You know, I like wearing homemade sweaters. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> you know, Sojourner Truth is... Well, then you should have a Sojourner Truth in your life. <laughs> oh, I'd, believe me, I'd be terribly honored to meet her. Uh, mm -hmm. She gave a famous speech, Ain't I a Woman? Right. And how the triumphalist calm expressed in the statue may offer thanks for victory while missing the need to spur us on to continue the fight. Tell us a bit about that Ain't I a Woman and what, what the sentiment was there. The the sentiment was expressed, but apparently she well there's a, there's a, an argument over whether she actually said those words. Well, yeah. There were several contemporaneous reports of that speech, and none of them included that phrase yeah. that was written many years later. Um, uh, and but she she was saying, "I'm a woman too." Apparently, you know the 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 thing we know we think we know about that speech is that she you know bared her breast and said look am i not a woman as well um i i don't think that happened but she she was saying you know i'm a woman as much as you are and i share this fight with you well that's very inspiring and that's what uh, statues are supposed to do inspire us to keep on what we're doing not just look back on it but think about what it was about and inspire conversation right so we can Absolutely. we can disagree about what it means and what it should be yeah and this this age of uh, so-called cancel culture it's about what you know i think it's a really good thing to think about what it is we're putting up on a pedestal quite literally and why, right. why we're celebrating it and what things we really want to have up on a pedestal. Do we want to have people like Robert E. Lee, who was a great general, but he fought for something that at least I don't really like. Uh, but in, in the age of... It's so interesting to me, all the re revisionism and then counter-revisionism on Robert E. Lee. I, I just belatedly am reading this uh, Grant biography, this terrific Grant uh -huh. biography. Uh -huh. 
And, you know, a lot of the attributes that Grant had were superimposed on Robert E. Lee later and vice versa. A lot of Lee's vices were attributed to Grant. Yeah. It's kind of interesting, that that switch. But, you know, you mentioned cancel culture. And after I wrote this, uh, there was a great pushback from some feminists who said, you're trying to cancel Susan B. Anthony. And of course, I'm not trying to cancel Susan B. Anthony. I appreciate everything they did, but I don't appreciate how it was accomplished. And I think we should be honest about it. Being honest about history. What a concept. Wow. <laughs> As I've long said, the one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. We just don't. It, it is... <laughs> In the age of Donald Trump, the kinds of expressions that Sojourner Truth, Stanton, and Anthony fought for are exceptionally current. Many feminists of color today feel that white feminists still tend to ignore racial issues and still aren't crazy about sharing leadership and activism. Right. If a movement is led by the type of well-off, educated white women whose right to vote hasn't been in question since 1920, what, what about this sharing leadership? Well, what I think there's much more awareness now, I mean, uh, that of intersectionality and that, you know, one freedom implies all other freedoms, right? So I I think we're getting there, but of course, we still have a lot of work to do. Uh, that is for sure. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Live. We're talking about something very important to democracy, black and white women, the right that was gained 100 years ago through a lot of difficulty for women to vote and uh, the racism that has been involved in the struggle. Where is it now? How big of a, a deal is it that we have uh, Kamala Harris running as vice president in this context? I thought it was interesting at the Republican convention, President Trump spent some time honoring a black uh, former inmate, singling him out mm. as extraordinary. To me, it looks like there's declaring there's no, not really a problem. The system is okay. And that it works. Oh yeah. You know when it's when it's not okay. Really, his statement denies systemic racism in the incarceration pandemic. History, of course, has a way of simplifying things. And uh, for example, when people think of the 1960s struggle for civil rights, the first thought is, of course, of Dr. Martin Luther King. It was thousands of people, really, and Dr. King would certainly agree. Making heroes out of individuals is somewhat disingenuous. It's a movement suggesting that those honored are the movement, that their work is done, that we don't have any have to do anything, may be seen as a way to disempower the movement itself. Now, maybe that's overthinking it. I don't know. What What are your thoughts on that? Is it? I thought it was so interesting how it was at odds with what we've seen from this administration for almost four long years, you know, that it seemed that Every black person Donald Trump had ever met was asked to speak at the convention. And that, I mean, you would think that, that this administration had been all about empowering black people instead of just the opposite. And, and on the criminal justice front, too, yes, he has pardoned some people. That's true. But has he done a single thing in favor of, of 
opposing systemic racism that he says doesn't exist? No. no. Or of really changing the system? No. So and, I was pretty offended by <laughs> by so many things I saw at the Republican convention. Now you and I must mostly be... the the um, misstatements. I mean, there were so many uh. lies. Rapid fire that, you know, those fact checkers must have been up all night. I like the idea of having a fact checker at the debate actually able to participate, Mm. but I don't think that's going to happen. And you and I must have a little bit of masochism in us because I watched it, too. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, to make it to, to make, you know, this person is extraordinary. Look, he got out of the system. There's no problem with the system because he figured a way out of it and to make, you know, life good for himself. Well, that, you know, that just says that the systemic racism, ah, there's is no problem with that. And there's no question monuments are important. They're a statement of who we are, what our values are. Starting with culture, mm-hmm. I think Europeans understand how important culture is more than we do, but that's another story. Trump is defending the Confederate statues. They are our heritage, he says. And I suppose they are. Mm -hmm. The nomination of Kamala Harris is not just about her. It has the potential, perhaps, to reignite feminism and to reignite, uh, uh, to help move along the the struggle for uh, ending systemic racism and perhaps to spread, to, to reignite it, to add some air to it. Statues are symbols. Is her candidacy now a symbol inviting us to act, not just ponder uh, the uh, what that about about uh, the past, uh, what women have done in the past? What does her candidacy say about the feminist movement today and the black movement as well? Anti-racist. I think she's a symbol, but she's also a person. I mean, she's more than a symbol, and so. You know, that's the argument you get into. Was she only chosen because of her demographics? No, she was also chosen because she can bring it. Um, So I I don't, I'm not sure I want to see her as just a symbol, uh, though she she is that too. What you said about, you know, defending our our symbols and our heritage, Mm -hmm. you know, that. At that same convention where the the whole presentation was, we're not racist, we love African-Americans, look at these 10 people who are speaking here, um, we also heard about defending heritage. I mean, Mike Pence, the vice president, said Donald Trump will always defend our heritage from those who would insult it. You know, heritage in that context only means one thing. It's only it's a shout out to Dixie. And so at the same time they're presenting this anti racist front, they're signaling to racists, don't worry, we've got you. Yeah, for sure. And I I wonder, you know, what what lies ahead for there's kind of the largely white feminist movement and there's the uh, movement against systemic racism. I, I wonder mm. what what is starting to happen? Perhaps Kamala Harris is, is some sort of a, a point at which the two may converge. And I, it would be wonderful if that could happen. And I, I wonder, if do you see that starting to happen? It's been, you know, it hasn't been there, quite frankly, too much, you know, in the struggle for uh, the women's right to vote. And, and since then, it's been kind of two separate things. And 
I wonder if this is a possibility now, if this is perhaps a, dare I say, hopeful point at which the two, you know, the, the uh, movement against, you know, mass incarceration, for example, which is incredibly racist, and the, the justice system and, and systemic racism in so many police departments uh, and bringing, it's not necessarily an issue that uh, the, what Trump would call a suburban housewife would necessarily care about. And, you know, he's trying to make them scared of black people coming into their neighborhoods. So right. how, how is end it? End of the suburbs. <laughs> yes. End of the all white suburbs. It, it, it's, I mean, I could expect that of George Wallace, but geez, you know, this guy's much more. Right. So is it starting to come together? What are your thoughts on that? I think it was already converging and has been quietly for a while. And I see that with younger women in particular. You know, um, I have uh, twins who are 24 years old, and my daughter and her friends don't see these as two different things. They uh -huh. see this as one thing. They see the push on race and gender and um, sexual orientation and for trans people. They see that as all one movement toward um, fairness and equality. And I think that's as it should be. So, And that act, they actually give me a lot of hope. Oh, I get tremendous hope. Last, well, I, I uh, Ed Markey won in Massachusetts recently, right. and filled with young people. It's, I mean, people. It's, it yeah. oh, it did my heart so good. I got a, I got an exuberant text from my Bernie loving son who was so excited for Ed Markey. <laughs> uh, it's great, and it's wonderful to see those yeah. kids, you know, at our age. And I wonder, you know, people held out tremendous hope when we elected our first and only black president, Barack Obama. Mm. And, but he was not a black leader. He never intended to be a black leader. Uh, you know, it wasn't about, he wanted to be, you know, the president for, for everybody. And he, you know, that famous speech right. in 2004 where there's not a blue America, not right. a red America, it's just one America. I wonder if... Oh, we're so far from that today. God, I know. Who'd have thunk it? But uh, I wonder yeah. if Kamala Harris... She must, I, I can't help but think that she understands that being a person of color and, and you know, of South Asian descent as well, and being a woman, there's there's a lot of power there. There's a lot of numbers, and we have to win. I, I, I sense, I can't help but think that she gets it, and that she may be more about black women than Obama was about black men. Your thoughts? Any guess? Crystal ball? Well, I think that, Obama rightly felt that he couldn't, that right. he won because he didn't campaign that way. He yes. he campaigned on bringing us together, and he tried his hardest to bring us together. And in some ways he did, but he also inspired a great backlash. Oh, that's for sure. And I remember the night he won uh, the first time. Yeah. I was on BBC and the interviewer asked me, so does this mean we're post-racial? And yeah. I'm pretty sure I burst out laughing, you know? And so, I mean, I didn't predict the kind of back, the Donald Trump backlash yeah. it would, it would produce, it would lead to, but um, you know, I, so I don't, I don't know that Kamala Harris will finish the job, but mm. I think she's, they're, if they win, going to do, both of them, everything they can to bring us closer. Boy, I sure hope so. And that hope is a dangerous word. But every now and then, 
Every now yeah. and then it comes through. Well, if people want to read, <laughs> people want to read more of your stuff, uh, Melinda Henneberger, how can they do that? There must be some way they can do it on that electronic stuff called the internet. <laughs> so I, as you said, I work for the Kansas City Star, uh, and they can find me on Twitter, Melinda uh, KCMO, and uh, they can look at the paper. I hope. <laughs> well, thank you so much, and uh, it's dangerous to hope, but I have some degree of hope, and I am impressed with uh, Kamala Harris. I'm fired up and ready to go, and I think a lot of people Good. are as well. <laughs> thank you so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank <laughs> you.